0: Good morning, everyone. It is great to see all of you. We want to welcome you, especially Smyrna Campus. We love you guys. We're glad you're connected with us, too, and everybody connecting with us online. We're so thankful for that technology where you could stay connected, uh, keep uh, connecting, growing, and serving, even if you have to do it online right now. Uh, it's just great that we could even do that. Uh, we are today continuing, actually finishing up a series that we've been doing called Rediscovering Christmas. Before we get to the message today, I want us to have a time of prayer here in Nashville. For those of you that may be listening from other places, you've probably seen it on the news. Uh, we were uh, coming into a great celebration of Christmas, and then we had a bombing uh, downtown. We're so thankful that uh, even though there were three injuries, there were no deaths. Uh, we are so thankful for the uh, heroic efforts of our first responders who who got in there and got people out and, and uh, helped secure the area. Uh, there's so many good things we need to be thankful for in the middle of all of that. It could have been so much worse. But of course we want to be praying for everybody that was injured, people that were affected by this, business owners that uh, were in those buildings down there that suffered the damage that they had. They'll, they'll have to recover from that. And so we want to be lifting them all up in prayer and supporting them. Uh, so let's have a time of prayer together right now. Fathers, we come to you. We thank you for your love, your care your provision for us and father we know that uh, what happened in downtown Nashville was was a scary thing and it was a work of uh, of evil intent and father we just thank you for your protection and your care we're so thankful that so many were kept safe and that our first responders did such a good job we just thank you for their sacrificial service to protect us Father, we thank you that we could still celebrate the fact that the Messiah had come no matter what. We could celebrate what he came to bring us, the hope, the peace, the joy, the love that he came to bring us is still present for us no matter what's going on around us. So today we celebrate, we continue to celebrate his coming, his advent, his appearing, as we prepare to go into another year Help us to do so as your people, trusting in you, representing you well in a world that needs the hope that we bring in the Messiah. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Many of you may remember I, I, I talked about this couple before. They have been married for about 65 years. And they never kept any secrets from us except one. The wife had this shoebox that she kept up on a shelf in the closet. And she told her husband, never, ever open the shoebox. And for 65 years, he had never opened it. But now she was very, very sick. They knew she didn't have much longer to live. And, and with her permission, he was allowed to open up the shoebox and see what was in there. So he opened it up. And there in the shoebox was a knitted or crocheted doll, and a whole lot of money. And he started looking at the money, and he counted it out. It was $95,000. And he was totally shocked. He didn't have any idea they had that money in the closet like that, that she had had that in there. So he went to her, and he said, I don't understand. What's this all about? And she said, well, when we were about to get married, my mother sat me down and said, the one most important thing about your marriage is you should never argue. So here's what you should do instead. Every time you get angry with him and think you might want to start an argument with him, just go crochet a doll instead. And so he felt really good. He said, my goodness, 65 years, there's only one doll in the box. This has been great. He said, but but what's the money? What's the $95,000? She said, oh, that's the money I made selling dolls. (laughs) (laughs) we've got this really messed up idea of what it means to love and have a loving relationship. We've got it so romanticized. We've got it so twisted in our minds on what real love is like and what it's all about that when it doesn't fit our fantasy, we think there's no love there. When it doesn't fit our fantasy, Uh, predetermined idea of what it's supposed to be like we think the love is gone and and the relationship is over and, and there's no need to stick with it anymore and that's why so few relationships last the way they ought to last. In this series, Rediscover Christmas, we have over the past few weeks looked at how Christ, the Messiah, his advent, his coming brought hope to us and it brought peace to us and and it brought the ability to have joy no matter what the circumstances. And we're finishing up today by looking at how he brought to us an understanding of and an ability to love like God loves And as we get ready to go into another year, we're in the last week of this year. And some of you are thinking, hallelujah, finally, right? We made it to the end of 2020. Now, don't speak too soon. We're not there yet. But there's still a lot that could happen, right? But even when we get there, at the Christmas Eve service, I talked about this. Even when we get there, it doesn't mean poof, magically, all of a sudden, everything's going to be great now. You see, there's still going to be a pandemic. People are still dealing with depression, anxiety people are still struggling economically people are still many of them without work or or without the kind of work that can really support their family like they need to relationships have been strained with the isolation and the 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 quarantining that we've had to do and the social distancing and all of that it is it's put pressure on relationships like never before you see all of those things are still going to be there So more than ever, we're going to need to go into this new year knowing how to love like God loves and knowing that God loves us the way he loves us. See, I'm convinced we can't love others the way we need to love others until we fully accept and understand as best we can and our limitations, how much God loves us, how loved we are by the God of the universe. Because when you don't feel loved, it's hard to love others. When you don't know for a fact how loved you are, then it it becomes very difficult when things are hard for you to keep loving somebody else when you don't feel like you're loved like that. And the mistake we often make is we depend on people to do that for us when people can't. Only God can do this for us. And that's why absent a relationship with God human beings don't do a good job loving each other. They don't just look at the world around us. Look at the bomb that just went off in Nashville. Look at all that's going on around the world. We don't do a very good job of loving each other when we don't have that relationship where it needs to be, where we know how much God loves us and we love God like he loves us. Because here's the thing about God's love. It can never be disconnected from loving others ever. Ever. Loving God includes, involves, demands that we love one another too. And so if we can learn this relationship, if we can rediscover the love of God in this Christmas season heading into this new year, it could change dramatically, radically how good our relationships are going to be moving forward, how great our witness is going to be for him as we move forward, how much this new year will lead to the blessings that God wants us to have. And I'm not talking about material blessings here. I'm talking about a blessed life, how, how getting this right will help us experience the blessed life that God wants us to, to enjoy, that he came here to give us. So I want us to look at three things about this love that his advent, his coming, uh, that we need to know about it. The first one is this Christ himself is love embodied. His coming brought love to us in the flesh so that we could see it so that we could know it so that we could experience it firsthand face to face. I love the letter of first uh, first John, first second and third John are all great but but first John is a letter that, that I've studied many times over and over again. And even while I was in in, uh, Bible college, I had to do a a translation from Greek into English of the whole book of 1 John. And so I got intimately involved with understanding what it was talking about. And and I'm so thankful that a professor made me do that. I hated it at the time. You know, it was hard work, but I love that I had to get so deep into it that I could grasp it a little better. Because it helped me have a much better perspective on love very early on in our married life. It helped me understand more fully and completely what it meant to love. Like we're supposed to love. And and so I want to read it uh, here, 1 John, a portion of it. uh, Chapter 4. I want to pick up with verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now that sounds a little sappy and sentimental at the first part. And that's how we usually think of love, right? The sappy sentimental side of it, the emotional side of it, the feel good emotional side of it. And that is part of it. That is there. But it's so much deeper than that. And and that's why he goes on to give us a better explanation of what he means by the love that he's talking about. Okay. Verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's a little deeper isn't it? See, he's saying, I want you to understand what real love is, what it looks like, how it acts, what it does when you have this kind of love. It's this kind of love that brought Jesus here in the advent that we celebrate. But he brought Jesus here, as he says here, so that we might live through him. Now, the way we're going to live through him is that he sent him here as an atoning sacrifice for our sins that's how we're going to have life through him he said this is love not that we love God that just makes sense for us to love God that ought to be just natural easy the amazing thing about defining love is that God loves us like this that he would send his son here to be that atoning sacrifice for our sins that's love defined in the flesh so that we could see it, so that we could know it, so that we could experience it in our own lives. And then he goes on. It doesn't stop there. Remember, it's directly connected to loving others. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to do what? Love one another. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Any of you want to have confidence on the day of judgment? Boy, I do. I want you to. This is how we have confidence in the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Oh. In other words, we need to love like Jesus loved. If we want to have confidence in the day of judgment. We need to love like he loved. There is no fear in love, he says, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. (laughs) If we have fear about judgment, it means we don't have this issue settled like we need to. We don't have our, our life in the place that it needs to be. We're not loving like we need to love not only are we not loving like we need to love we're not understanding and accepting how God loves us if we have a fear of judgment Christians tell me all the time if they're asked do you know for sure if you died today you'd be saved they always say things like well I sure hope so does that sound like what he's saying we need to live like no he's saying we can have confidence in the day of judgment. How do you have confidence in the day of judgment? You know God's love for you and you have allowed him through you to love others the way he loves you. That's how you can have confidence that you have that relationship that you need to have with God, the father so that you don't have to have any fear when it comes to judgment. So Jesus came as the embodiment of love. So when we start trying to define love, the first place we should go is to Jesus. See who he is. See what he has done. Understand what he's still doing for us even now and what his plans for us are for the future because of his love for us. That's how you know what love is. Sometimes in human relationships, we put all these tests on people's love. You know, if you love me, you would, and we have whatever we expect, right? In the fill in the blank. If you really love me, you'd do this, you'd do that. The truth is, if we really love each other, we'll love like Jesus loved. And I think we misunderstand that. But let's let's get to the next thing about this love. This love is supposed to define us as Christ followers. It is supposed to define us as Christ followers. And yet... When you ask people in the world about Christians, is this the main attribute you hear them talk about? My, how they love. No, that's not what you hear, is it? You hear my, how they judge, how they criticize, how they tear down, how they don't even get along with each other. Well, that's what you hear from the outside world those who aren't Christ followers, aren't part of the family of the church. We've not done a very good job of living out this love that we're supposed to be living out. Now, it doesn't mean there are no exceptions to that. Well, Yes, sometimes we do well. Sometimes we we get this. Sometimes we we act like this, but, but we're not as consistent with it, are we, as we need to be. We, we don't... We don't maintain it at that level like we need to. Now, I'm not saying we've got to be perfect. That's not what God's word is saying either. He's not saying you've got to be perfect, but you've got to love like Jesus loves. Even in your imperfection, even in my imperfection, we still need to love like Jesus loves. And we still have his grace when we come short, and we still can repent and seek forgiveness and find that in Christ. But what do we need to get back to then? Loving the way he loves. Absolutely. In the Gospel of John, chapter 13, beginning with verse 34, Jesus is teaching. And he says, A new command I give you. And they're thinking, Oh man, a new command. Now they had hundreds of commands already. They're thinking, All right, one more command, right? But here's a new one. And, and Jesus is a new teacher for them, and they're and they're understanding he can bring some new understanding insight to them. And they're excited, I'm sure, when he says, A new command I give you. And here's a new command. Love one another. <gasps> Don't you think they said, oh, wait a minute. Now, before he continued, we already had that one. I mean, that was already a command. They already had been commanded to love one another. Why is this a new command, Jesus says, that I'm giving you? Look, look what he says. Love one another. And then he adds this, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's what makes it a new command. <laughs> you see how I've loved you? You're going to see more and understand more about that love. He, this is not long before he ends up going to give his life for them on the cross. He says, the way I've loved you, that's what makes this new. You've loved, but you haven't understood it and lived it like this before. That's what makes it new. I've now given you a living example Of this kind of love. And my new command is you love like this. But then he adds this in verse 35. By this, by what? By loving like this, okay. Everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you do what? Love one another. The mark of Christ followers should be the amazing way we love each other. That should be the mark of Christ followers. Given enough time and opportunity, what can we do? Boy, we can sure mess it up, can't we? The one thing that holds the church back in the world more than anything else historically throughout all the years of the existence of the church has been division in the church more than anything else. It has hurt the witness and the testimony of the church. And many people without even meaning to have it happen have allowed Satan use them to stir up division. Which breaks the ability of the church to be that witness to the world of what it means to love one another. Satan loves to stir up division. The scripture is clear on that. That's one of the main weapons that he uses in relationships and churches and in the world. Is to create division where we don't love like we ought to love each other. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you this new commandment because if you can follow this commandment, the world is going to know Christ followers by what main trait? Love. How we love one another. And since that time, we've taken his church and divided it up into hundreds of divisions, different denominations and sects and groups that we divided ourselves into primarily because we didn't love each other well. Not the only contributing factor, but it's the main contributing factor to all these different divisions that we have in the body of Christ. Because even when there are disagreements, if we love each other, we could have kept from dividing with each other. And so Satan has had a heyday by convincing us that love is only needed when. You get along with each other. When you when you agree with each other, then you can love each other. When, when things are going well and you're happy with the other person and how they're doing things, then you can love each other. And Jesus has said all along, this is love. <laughs> what I did, the example I set for you, this is love. The scripture says, even while we we're his enemies, he died for us. That's love. And so we need to go back to understanding love is supposed to define us. Now, we misunderstand love so much. So so later on, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write this special passage about love. We call it the love chapter in the Bible. You know, a lot of you know it before I say it. First Corinthians what? 13. There you go. First Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter in the Bible. And I use a portion of this at almost every wedding I do. Because it just so fits what love is supposed to be like. It's a description of love. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, it says this. Love is, and he gives us these adjectives about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And we love all of those for us. That's what we want the other person to do for us. Love us no matter what. And that's what's being described here, right? But we've so twisted that around and misused it that we forget what the rest of this means. Love does not delight in what? Evil, but rejoices with the what? Truth. We've compromised so much thinking that that's love. Love. That we have accepted untruths, lies, and things that God says are evil. And we thought if we love that person, we have to accept and endorse those things. But he says love does not delight in evil. But instead, what real love does is it rejoices in the truth about things. There are people that don't like some of what God says. Some of what he pronounces as truth in his word. So why would God tell us those things? Because he loves us. He wants us to know the truth about those things. You see, when you really love somebody, you want them to know the actual truth. Especially about eternal things. The things that will matter in judgment and eternity. Why would we not tell them the truth about those things if we really love them? And even churches all across the world are compromising on truth and accepting and endorsing what God calls evil. And they're doing it in the name of love. We're just a loving church. We just love everybody. We don't, no judgment here, right? Don't you hear that? And there's some truth to that. We're not the judges, but who is? God is. There is a judge, even though it's not us. So shouldn't we tell them the truth about what the judge says? The judgment will be about? Absolutely. That's real love. Every parent in here, you know. You know that if you love your child, you're going to tell them the truth about the things that you believe, whether it's right or not. If you believe it's bad for them, we're going to harm them. You will try to tell them the truth about it, what you know about it, to keep them from being hurt by it. that's what God does for us in his word. He tells us the truth about these things. Because real love understands the need for them to know the truth. And real love wants to speak up against evil because evil will always hurt, kill, destroy, always. One of the most unloving things we can do in order to be politically correct and viewed by the culture as loving is not to tell the truth about these things. It's one of the most unloving things we could do. Now, there's a difference in teaching the truth about these things in love and not in love, right? There's a big difference in those two things. And churches have failed on both sides of this issue. We have on one side of the issue... Being mean, been mean, mean-spirited and how we taught the truth about those things. But on the other side, we've been uh, misunderstanding love and thinking we don't even need to teach them these things at all. But the God's, but God's word says, proclaim the truth in what? Love. We've got to find that, that place where we can as best as possible, still love like we're supposed to love while telling people the truth about evil and good, about what will bless and what will hurt, about what God is pleased with and what he's not pleased with in our lives. I love being part of a church where the leadership and the staff here is committed to that. You can know that without any reservation. We don't always get it right, of course. We don't always perfectly speak it out and live it out, but we are committed to being a church where the truth is proclaimed in love. I wouldn't preach at a church that wasn't. And and I think you know that about me. I think you know that about the leadership here. But we're living in a culture that's making it harder and harder to do that. The world around us is not as supportive of that as it used to be and it's getting less and less supportive of it as we go along. But here's the thing. This is not a command to love like this just to the leadership. It's not a command to love like this and do this just among the pastors and the elders and the staff at a church. This is instruction for who? For all of us. To love like this. To love in such a way that we will not delight in evil, but we rejoice with the truth. And here's why. Love always protects and always trusts and always hopes and always perseveres. Because you care about people and want to protect them when you love them, you have to speak the truth to them in a loving way. Here's the problem with doing that. They don't always receive it that way, do they? They don't always receive it as an act of love when you speak the truth to them about these things. But what you have to remember is real love has to be willing to chance that. Think about Jesus. He came here to demonstrate this love for us. Did he know in advance that a lot of us would not receive it well? Yes. Did he know that many of us would reject him completely? Did he know we would nail him to a cross for what he was doing and teaching? But what did he do anyway? He came anyway. He loved anyway. He was willing to pay the price to love us like that. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us like this. And He commands us to love one another. That leads to the third thing. And that is love then empowers us. It empowers us. In order to demonstrate in his teaching, what he was talking about here and that culture, there was a real division among people, remember? It was between uh, the Jews and the Gentiles. And among the Gentiles, there was even a subgroup of Gentiles that were hated the most. Do you remember what group that was? Samaritans. Samaritans were kind of thought of as half-breeds who weren't really Jews, or, but they were like Jews that had compromised and intermarried with non-Jews, and they, just, they were looked down on big time. They, they were seen as what they thought were the lowest of all of humanity by some of the self-righteous Jews and Jewish leaders. And when Jesus came to set this example and teach us about loving, he told a story. There was somebody that asked him, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, how do you read the scriptures? And he quoted, you know, the commands, love God and and all that. He says, yeah, if you do that, you'll live. He said, love God, love your neighbor. Yeah, if you do that, you'll live. And and then he said, well, he was trying to justify himself. So he asked the question, "Well, well, then if I have to love my neighbor, who is my neighbor? Can you give me a definition, Jesus, of exactly who I have to love? Because he already knew in his mind there were some people he didn't want to have to love like this. He knew that. He's a lawyer, it says in scripture. You know how lawyers look for the loopholes. He's looking for the loophole. John raised his hand in the back. Thanks, John. And sometimes that's a good thing, but sometimes it's a way to get out of something you should be doing. Okay. So here's what he says. He told a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You know the story. He's attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a what? The Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. And then he said, now who was the neighbor to the man who was beaten and lying on the side of the road? The Samaritan. Who's the hero of the story? A Samaritan. <laughs> if you know that culture, you could almost feel the anger and the tension that built up when Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of the story. There's no way a, a Samaritan could be seen by God as a good, loving person. But the Samaritan was the good neighbor, he's the one who loved his neighbor. And what Jesus was saying to us, there's a lot of things to unpack there, but one of the main things Jesus was saying to us is this. This kind of love is there for everybody and supposed to be given to everybody. God's love is there for everybody. Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, whatever category you want to put in there, he loves us. But then he also says, because he loves them, what are we supposed to do? Love them also. You can't love God without loving your neighbor. If you don't love your neighbor, you're lying about loving God. That's what he's saying. You claim to love God. You can say the words that you love God. But if you don't love your neighbor, you don't really love God either. Because you can't separate those two things. Remember 1 John 4, let's look at verse 18 and 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. So because God loves us, it should remove that fear that we have about loving others. One of the things I believe that has held us back on being able to bring other people to Christ is fear. Not just fear of what they might think of us, but we are actually sometimes afraid to get to know some people that aren't like us and to spend time with people that aren't like us. And, and actually hear their story and find out what their story is and maybe why they ended up like they are, doing what they're doing, even though we don't approve of it, right? Does it help to know their story, to understand them? But we like to set up these little bubbles as Christians. Years ago, there was a book on evangelism that called these little bubbles holy huddles. We like to set up little holy huddles where we only have to spend a lot of time with people like us who agree with us, who look like us, who talk like us, who, who we know if we say something about what the Bible says, they're not going to ridicule it. They're not even going to question it. They're just going to support it, right? Isn't it fun to be around groups like that? Our life groups are usually that way, aren't they? We love being with that life group because we're, we're all in agreement here on most of this stuff. In the latest surveys that Barna Research has done The average Christian in the average church in America has less than two non-Christian friends that they interact with on a regular basis. Now, we have to be around some at work. We can't help it, right, if they work in the same place we do. They're not talking about just that you work at the same place. They're talking about actually interacting with them on a regular basis. The average Christian has less than two. How much impact are we going to have in the non Christian world that way? Not much. And here's the thing you don't have to compromise anything about what you believe to do this. You don't have to to say you accept everything about them to still care about them and interact with them and spend time with them. You don't have to say you approve of everything in their lives to do that. But we're scared, we see it as a threat. We see non-Christians in our culture in America as the enemy. When Christ looks at the same crowd and says the fields are white for harvest. That's the way he sees them. But we need laborers. We need people to go bring in the harvest. You see, when we love like God loves, we don't wait till they get their act together to love them to interact with them, to come to them. Did Jesus wait till we got our act together to come for us? He would have never come. He would have never come. We need to learn to love. So I want to close with this passage for this series, Ephesians 3, verse 17 to 19. He says this, this is hope for us as Christ followers that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God because when we are, we can have the power to love like God loves us. And that... My friends, is God's plan for the church changing the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that in Christ we have the presence of your spirit living in us. And the fruit of your spirit begins with love. It is your presence in us that empowers us to be able to love like you love us. I pray, Father, that we would remember today that that love is always there for us and that you, you call us because we know that love to share it with everybody around us without compromise, without without changing the truth of what you've taught, without anger and hatred, to simply love other people enough, to care enough about them, to want to bring them to know you like we know you and your love in our lives. Help us, Father, to remember the power of that love is there for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.